Hi, Josh. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back to sunny and a little too hot New York. Good to be back. <laughs> Just returned from Los Angeles, where I was covering the AFL-CIO's quadrennial convention, as I, I always wonder if that word is deserving of retirement or not, but... Every time I try to put it away, it just keeps dragging me back again. (laughs) So, this week, as every week, on Descent's Belabored Podcast, we open with a roundup of recent news in labor. Important story that was broken by the New York Times' Stephen Greenhouse was discussions between Volkswagen and the United Auto Workers about some kind of deal for union recognition in a German-style works council at a plant in Tennessee. As Sarah has talked about on this podcast before, the UAW's efforts under current President Bob King to organize at part suppliers in the South are, along with the question of how the UAW grapples with so-called right-to-work in Michigan, really a core and very high-stakes question about this union's future and its direction. Mm -hmm. This suggests that the strategy that the UAW has taken has at at least made some sort of progress towards the goal that they've set out. Interestingly, these work councils really are somewhat new territory, at least in terms of most workplaces in the current United States. They're something that you often hear people discuss when they argue for the advantages of social democracy or more European models. It was interesting, on the other hand, though, to see an interview with Automotive News from June in which Bob King was arguing that these work councils could be more attractive to employers than traditional collective bargaining arrangements. Bob King has also talked in the past, like in a profile in the American Prospect, about getting over or getting away from the perception of union contract rules being too restrictive. There's also discussion in that automotive news article about the employer looking for what they refer to basically as some more American-style, more appropriate approach to unionization in the U.S. And so it's going to be fascinating to see if, and there are several ifs here, but if this moves forward, what these work councils look like and to what extent they're more or less democratic or more or less empowering than the kind of collective bargaining model that we see elsewhere in the auto industry. It reminds me of a, a, an interesting and provocative piece that our friend Bhaskar Sankara did a while ago in Dissent about the, the left-wing critique of co-ops. And so all of this will be very interesting to watch, although, of course, as we know, Friendly signals or non-union busting signals from employers don't necessarily mean that there's actually recognition without a huge fight uh, in the offing. (laughs) It's interesting. I'm going to jump on this for just a second, because when we talk about the South, we really talk about the South as if it's a monolithic entity. And there will be more about this later in today's episode. Um, Foreshadowing. But it's certainly not, right? Tennessee is not South Carolina, is not Louisiana, is not Texas, if we're even including Texas in what people call the South. And so success in Tennessee may not be something that is necessarily exportable to Mississippi, where the UAW is also trying to organize workers. So it'll be interesting to see what catches on where as this spreads, which hopefully it does. Um, 
So a year ago this week, the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike, which um, is sort of the strike that was heard around the world. Everybody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants to be Karen Lewis's best friend. Everybody wants to learn from it. We featured CTU President Karen Lewis in episode number one of the Labor Podcast. And the battle for Chicago schools, along with the battle for Philadelphia schools that we talked about recently, and the entire public school system has became really then and has remained national news. In that time, the conversation has shifted from what we were used to seeing on education. Um, Resistance to standardized testing has grown. Caucuses modeled on the core caucus that put Karen Lewis and others in charge of the Chicago Teachers Union in the first place have now sprung up at other teachers unions around the country. And in the last few months here in New York, as we've been watching the mayor's race, i You know, it was interesting to watch all the Democratic candidates in the primary, you know, denounce standardized testing and call for a a change in the way the public schools have been run. Even the ones that have notable ties to charter schools, not naming any names. Um, But some things haven't changed. Chicago public schools are open again, and many of them still don't have the air conditioning that became an issue in last year's strike. Um, There is an article in the Chicago Sun-Times that CPS is handing out personal fans to students to beat the heat this week as they return to these classrooms that still don't have the basics. And those are happening in record temperatures, by the way. Lauren Fitzpatrick at the Sun-Times wrote, Some 50 schools that received children from the 47 elementary schools and one high school program shuttered in June were supposed to get fully air-conditioned over the summer. It is a reminder, of course, of how far we still have to go and of the slogan that these radical teachers' caucuses have adopted, are our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. We're recording this podcast shortly after, as expected, D.C. Mayor Vince Gray vetoed the Large Retailer Accountability Act. This was the so-called Walmart bill that would have required minimum compensation for Walmart and some other companies of at least $12.50 an hour. As we've talked about on the podcast before, it drew some attention to the black box of how much Walmart pays its workers. Walmart puts out a figure that doesn't include part-time workers and does include managers, Others have put the estimate at below $9 an hour, but it certainly was interesting to see Walmart's resistance to twelve fifty as an overall compensation floor. At this point, the center of action shifts to Tommy Wells, a member of council who's believed to be a potential candidate for mayor who voted against the bill. As we've talked about here, the bill got eight votes and would need a two-thirds majority of nine to override a veto. That vote could come as soon as early next week. And it's not clear to me that there's particular reason for optimism for supporters in terms of flipping that vote and making this law. Obviously, if they did, it would be a big deal. If they don't, nonetheless, this will be something that drew a lot of attention, certainly inspired a tremendous number of emails from Walmart, including one quoting Mike Bloomberg to the press denouncing Soviet-style communism. It's also... Wait, wait, wait. I didn't hear about that. Yeah, yeah. He used... Oh, yes. Yes. Maybe he... That was in reference to the living wage bill, which we've talked about on this podcast as recently as last week. In fact, it's possible that Walmart Stephen Restivo heard the Bloomberg quote for the first time when you read it on Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. (laughs) Clearly, they're listening very closely. 
But it is an interesting example of the way that labor, and in particular some of these alt-labor groups that are, at least for now, operating outside of traditional collective bargaining, have used the state and the political process as another way to try to force up standards or put pressure on companies to wring out other concessions, potentially, and the challenges in doing so. I wrote today at the Washington Post about the the limits of only talking about the Walmart business model in terms of wages and benefits and not talking about the way that Walmart has kept those wages and benefits where they are, which is by making it so difficult for workers to regulate their own wages by banding together for collective action. And it's interesting to see as we talk about the future for our Walmart, for the fast food campaign, and the idea that many people think that this is really all about trying to get local laws passed rather than to actually build power in the workplace, we see how unreliable it is trying to just push for legislation. In any case, um, speaking of legislation, some slightly positive news this week from Indiana. I know, I know. Which podcast do you think this is? (laughs) Anyway... A judge in Indiana, state judge, has ruled that that state's so-called right-to-work law, or as we like to call it, no-rights-at-work law, is unconstitutional. The judge said that it requires unions to perform services which for which they cannot be compensated, violating Article 1, Section 21 of the Indiana Constitution, which reads, No person's particular services shall be demanded without just compensation. Of course, so-called right-to-work laws... Um, that's what they're all about. They're about defunding unions by forcing them to represent, to provide those services to people who then don't have to pay anything, um, which, of course, dries up their funding to do much of anything, notably, of course, to organize more workers. So federal law, of course, requires unions to provide those services to non-members who are in a bargaining unit that they represent. And so the judge said that because of the federal law and this Indiana state law, it would make it a criminal offense for a union to receive compensation for services that the federal law requires it provide. But there's always a but whenever I have good news for you, I swear. Um, (laughs) He didn't block implementation of the law holding off for an expected appeal. And of course, they'll appeal. So as we saw, thousands protest the law when it was passed in 2012. Hopefully we'll see some pressure to, you know, I don't, I don't know. We don't want people pressuring judges, right? Tune in to the <laughs> Labor Podcast. We want, but, you know, I, it's an, actually an interesting question, right? Because we want to, on the one hand, believe that judges are impartially interpreting law, right? But on the other hand, they're political actors just like everybody else, and to pretend otherwise is lying. Um, and anybody who remembers the 2000 election could maybe... You know, <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. Wait, Sarah, th- that decision specifically said it didn't set any kind of precedent that had anything to do with anything else. Yeah, weird how that works. It was just a one-time thing. <laughs> we probably shouldn't even talk about it. You know, in deference to to yes, of course, of course. Sorry, sorry about that. Decision. Sorry about that. Um, no, but it's it's an interesting question, right? These judges, as we saw when we talked about the victory over the Long Island College Hospital here in New York, that public pressure, public action indeed had an influence on a judge's actions. She did, in fact, go look into the situation at the hospital and acted because 
there was so much outcry about what was going on. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, we're sure we'll have more. Anybody in Indiana who wants to talk about this, um, let us know. Drop us an email. Tweet at us at hashtag belabored. And if you successfully change a judge's position uh, on anything, especially if you do it by fomenting a social movement that leads them to follow in your direction rather than the direction of reaction or rather than the direction of progressivism, depending on what kind of belabored listener you are, uh, <laughs> please do let us in. As, as Sarah suggests, certainly judges are political actors as well. How you go fight capitalism being quiet? How you go fight racism being shy? How you go fight the man when you ain't got no plan? How you gonna live your life when your ass won't fight? So, Josh, um, it's hot as hell here in New York right now, but uh, you just got back from Los Angeles where it's always hot as hell. Um, Pretty nice, not gonna lie. So... I want to hear, first of all, I guess starting out with what are your sort of big picture takeaways from your days at the AFL-CIO convention? So I got into town Saturday and stayed for the the four days of the AFL-CIO's quadrennial every four years (laughs) convention. Belabored listeners may know that the AFL-CIO is not itself a union, but is the largest and at this point really... The, the only self-proclaimed main federation of unions in the United States. It it was an interesting few days. There were, I would say, a lot of questions in the air about opening up and about doubling down. And, and the opening up piece is what got a lot of the press. Before the convention, there were these conflicting reports that, about plans that had come out of the pre-convention discussions about tightening the ties between the AFL-CIO and, on the one hand, progressive non-labor groups like the NAACP, and on the other hand, non-union labor groups like domestic workers or Walmart workers or the AFL-CIO's own affiliate Working America. And those conversations really got conflated in the press, I think, more than they should have. The most incendiary version of that conversation was descriptions that appeared in the press, which were contested, that suggested that there could be some kind of formal affiliation and formal decision-making power given to progressive groups, including the Sierra Club, which has found itself recently in conflict, particularly with the laborers' union over the Keystone Pipeline. And so that became, to some extent, the cause celeb of the people criticizing this plan, although there was a certain amount of shadow boxing in that the something that was very clear at the AFL-CIO convention is that the, the controversy is not meant to come out on the actual convention floor. So by the time that resolutions are actually being voted on, yeah. either something has been subsumed in another resolution or shunted into a committee in private, or generally people have gotten together to the point that even the people who have issues aren't actually going to stand up and oppose it. But Mm -hmm. in the conversation before the resolution that people decided, at least symbolically, was the resolution that represented all of their concern about this, it was clear that the concern there was much broader than the question of should groups that don't have members as their funding source or groups that aren't unions or groups that are about protecting clean air have a vote at the AFL-CIO executive committee, something that some folks in the AFL-CIO suggest 
they never really intended. The, the conversation is also about this debate that goes back a century and more in the labor right. movement about, well, are unions organizations that are paid by their members to aggressively represent the workplace needs of their members, or are they social movement organizations that are designed to be leaders and good neighbors in the larger left. And I had an interesting conversation with uh, Harold Shapeberger of the firefighters who had concerns about this and was very explicit about saying we should care about workers' issues. Like we, He said that the union should not be affiliated with any particular, not just political party, but ideological part of society. Uh-huh. I had the chance to do a lightning round with him about well, what counts as a workers' issue. So, for example, <laughs> he said... Uh, Firing people for being gay is a workers' issue. Uh, Gay workers being able to marry each other and get the benefits of marriage is not a workers' issue. He said that contraception coverage in your health care could be a workers' issue, but the right to have an abortion would not be a workers' issue. That voting rights would be a workers' issue, but the environment would not be a workers' issue. And so it it was interesting to try to parse parse where he draws those lines. Yeah. Certainly it's in a very different place than it's very, the CTU. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting, right? I, I just finished reading Nelson Lichtenstein's book about Walmart, um, The Retail Revolution, that's and there was, there's a line sort of in the end um, saying something about people seeing, about workers and consumers seeing their interests as the same, and I was like, that's sort of a funny way to put it. Like, where do you think consumers get the money to consume? Well, unless we're, you know, really rich. Um, from work, right? <laughs> Workers and consumers are the same people. The the same people who need abortions and have trouble actually accessing them are are women who are people who are working, right? It's it's a very interesting question. Um, I I mean, obviously, there is a difference between you know saying that all of our issues are. I don't know. It's it's that's a it's going to be an ongoing, I'm sure, very complicated discussion. But yeah, when you sort of ask somebody to break it down like that, it starts to sound very sort of coarse, you know, that like, well, you know, you're, you're, this thing is a, our issue and this thing is not our issue. And it's, it reminds me of sort of discussions within feminism of like, is this a feminist issue? Is this not a feminist issue? And like, is this about gender completely? And it's just like, Um, which can our be our listeners are getting that great sound, but not the great face and emotions <laughs> that go with it. Sorry, guys. Um, but I think Laura Clausen made a great point to us in last week's episode about one of the biggest problems with a lot of the rest of the you know quote unquote progressive movement or or these large progressive organizations is that they are funded with rich people's money. Mm-hmm. And we saw this, we talked um I don't remember exactly which episode it was where we talked about Just listen um, to them all and you'll find Listen it. to them all. Where we talked about labor problems at the ACLU, right? Which is a yep. venerable old left organization that has also deep labor roots, but that has grown away from those clearly in recent years that's been a huge problem for the progressive movement in general and it does create a problem when we're talking about bringing these things together right that real questions of not just democracy and representation but actual power and where it comes from 
In any case, (laughs) this is something, no doubt, that uh, we will all continue to talk about until the end of time. Certainly on the Belabored podcast. Right. So when you think about some of these resolutions that were passed, um, some of which are very detailed, others are not very detailed, what were some of the ones that stuck out to you and sort of give us the, the sense on the floor of what they were actually like for those of us who only got to read about them through news releases? So... I would say, with some exceptions, like in 1999, when the AFL took a real leftward turn on immigration Mm -hmm. over the course of the convention, I mean, that, of course, was related to things that have been coming from below and going on on the ground, but that happening at the convention was extremely significant. In general, I would argue that these resolutions tend to either reflect or ratify shifts that have already been happening Mm -hmm. or represent an intention to head in a direction in the future and and sometimes both yeah the one that you'll be hearing about in the press for the longest was on obamacare related to various issues with the implementation in terms of the penalties on employer the treatment of immigrants the tax credits and the difference between the treatment of for-profit healthcare companies and non-profit Taft-Hartley union healthcare plans. This is something that has uh, become an issue of great concern for unions that otherwise fall in fairly different places on the spectrum in terms of the kinds of workers they organize, in terms of the kind of political ambitions or social vision they have. And a resolution that didn't really exist in full form by the beginning of the week, by the end of the week had been revised and debated privately various times to the point that it was brought to the floor in the final afternoon. You had, unlike any other resolution, a high number consecutively of union presidents each going to the floor to talk about it on behalf of their union and saying pretty pointed things against Obama. Whereas for example, when the AFLCO was talking about trade in a way that's very different from Obama's position, people right. were generally hesitant about actually using his name. Right. So that's interesting. That potential rupture, that at least tension, was very interesting. Yeah. Were they healthcare unions more than others that were speaking out on this? I know that you know some several of the uh, healthcare workers' unions have been certainly involved in both ends on. Obamacare, right? They're seeing what it's doing to the places that they work, as well as seeing what it's doing to their own health care. Interestingly, the, the building trades were really a major oh, force yeah. in pushing okay. for this resolution, although folks from various other unions came out in support of it. Again, behind the scenes, unions took very different tacks. Even in their speeches on the floor, unions took different tacks. So uh, Terrence O'Sullivan, the head of the laborers, as he had told some of us reporters he would ahead of time, said on the floor that the resolution was not strong enough because it should threaten repeal. Mm-hmm. And I asked him beforehand how he would look at it, how he would think about the impact that repealing Obamacare would have on people who are not union members and currently don't have health insurance. And right. he said, this again goes to the question of what a worker issue is, mm-hmm. what the social mission of a union is, and which workers, political agenda. which workers we care about. So his answer was... Uh, It was not to criticize Obamacare from the left and talk about single payer. His answer was to say that there were good things about the act, but essentially that his core responsibility was to look out for his members Mm -hmm. and that 
the collectively bargained health care plans they currently have involve 25 to 30 percent of contributions ending up in cost sharing that helps poor people. Yeah. Other people on the floor, other unions, or yeah. in my interviews with folks like the president of AFSCME, were not willing to suggest that the bill should be repealed. Instead, right. they were saying it should be changed. And there was one person who spoke against the resolution who was from the California Nurses Association, to right. go back to your question, who yes. said we should not even pass this resolution because we should be fighting for single payer, which, yeah. by the way, is the official position of the AFL-CIO is yeah. that we should have a single payer system, although that uh, was not the focus right. of this resolution or of the activism around it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Also, I guess I'm thinking that some some of the big healthcare workers unions are not in the AFL-CIO. So I, I can think of one. <laughs> Perhaps we have some listeners that would like to tell us what um, some of the healthcare workers unions that are not in the AFL-CIO think about Obamacare and what we should do with it. <laughs> in any case... Um, so one of the, the resolutions that really caught my eye was the one about mass incarceration, that this has been particularly an issue of some tension because a lot of prison guards are unionized and a lot of unions that are, in fact, represented at the AFL-CIO are, you know, they, they do represent prison workers. So this is an interesting idea. Gotta say, I don't agree with all of the text of it, but an interesting step in any case to really talk about this issue, to really make it a racial justice issue and, and foreground that. So, yeah, I want to hear about how that was. I know that Trumka actually mentioned it in his speech, right? Yeah, Trumka spoke emotionally and passionately and at length about the resolution. This is a resolution that's referenced in various other resolutions. Right. At the diversity conference, mini conference that took place before the convention, people talked about this and more generally the sense that for the AFL-CIO to be a good neighbor and a good partner, it needs to be taking leadership on the wide range of issues that affect working class people in this right. country. And so it, this resolution got a lot of attention, I think deserved attention. I did ask... Stephen Pitts uh, of the Black Worker Center Project and the University of California about th this question of yeah. prison guards and unions, and he basically said it's complicated and it's <laughs> yes. going to continue to be complicated, but yeah. noted that AFSCME was in support, as AFSCME was. And yeah. when I asked Lee Saunders, the president of AFSCME, about this, he his claim was that it hadn't been internally controversial, yeah. that prison guards are members of AFSCME, share many of the same concerns, certainly around privatization, he said that it had been important to people that the resolution have language, which it does, noting that the the safety of prison guards and the safety of prisoners can yeah. both be implicated by the same trends and the same mm -hmm. challenges. Yeah. Certainly, that is not equally true in every situation. Right. But in this case, you know, AFSCME has been fully publicly in support of the resolution, and Lee Saunders insisted that privately... It, was not something that was a fight there. It'll certainly be interesting to see how this stance plays out in terms of organizing that takes place on the ground, especially yeah. locally. And I, I would note to circle back that when I asked uh, Shadeberger of the firefighters whether the mm -hmm. mass incarceration resolution would count as a workers' issue, he said that he had not been able to fully review it yet. And mm -hmm. so he, he declined to say either way. Yeah. So one of the big questions, of course, is always 
how many of these goals, as you said, these, you know, these sort of aspirational resolutions, what can actually happen? And I think with, there's one more than others that I think that that's a big question. And when we're talking about sort of organizing in the South, which is the sort of white whale of American organized labor, um, what do you think about that, Josh? Answer that huge question right now. Well, one expression that I've heard from people on the record, some people not for attribution in the dozens of interviews that I've done at the convention and before is Coalition of the Willing. That came up a number of times. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good reference for anyone to be making. So, for example, on the issue of partnerships with progressive groups and the language that actually came up at the floor, and there's more detail about this in the blogging I did at The Nation, Larry Cohen ultimately came said to me, we came to a compromise, which is those of us that want to do this get to do it, and those who don't want to do it don't have to do it. <laughs> and that describes a lot of things at the AFL-CIO. So the, the resolution on organizing in the South, which you mentioned, th- there are several whereases. The let it be resolved clause basically says this will be a priority, and the AFL-CIO will push the affiliates to make it a priority. Yeah. So that language in and of itself does not compel much of anything. Now, if the forces that got that resolution out there and that are behind it and the the larger forces that are bringing a recognition of crisis for a lot of people in the labor movement lead to this turning into something, then it will turn into something. And and one of the resolutions that got zero press attention, but I thought was very interesting, was one about organizing that basically committed each of the international unions to submit a confidential plan to Rich Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO each year, about what kind of organizing they're going to do. That is not something that currently happens, given the relationships between some of the affiliates. It is not something that one could have taken for granted, would be drafted, or would pass. But again, the question is, how does it get operationalized? Uh, Larry Cohen also said to me at one point, it's not a unified organization, it's a federation. Right. And so the, that question of what the federation can do to spur organizing, along with spurring progressive politics, is uh, really at, at the beating heart of all of this. Let me tell you about the people who paid me. Macy's, a.k.a. modern-day slavery. You know two gallons of gas in this state equal one hour pay at minimum wage. Yeah, maybe I'm just... That brings us to the end of episode 22 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. This is where every week we say, ARG! I wish I had written that. Sarah, if it was a little hot, a little muggy maybe, you weren't in beautiful Los Angeles but you were in New York where at least we have public transit. But you had no fan, and instead you had to sew together just enough sheer, compact, concentrated resentment (laughs) to wave in front of your face to to cool yourself. What would you be resenting? (laughs) I I don't know if I have resentment exactly about this week's piece because I'm as listeners probably know, I have never worked as an organizer, so I am, you know, somewhat 
circumspect about how much advice I'm actually going to offer on concrete organizing strategy. Um, but this week, I did wish that I had had some more concrete thoughts on organizing the South. Um, as a former Southerner, I have a lot of feelings about organizing in the South. Um, I worked some low-wage jobs in South Carolina and Louisiana, and uh, not everyone can do what I did and pack up and move to New York. Um, so this week, I'm giving a shout-out to a post originally at the South Lawn and reprinted at Facing South at the Institute for Southern Studies um, by Douglas Williams, my, my Twitter buddies, um, Douglas Williams, and a Southern organizer who uses the pseudonym Cato Udikensis. Um Titled A Call for a Second Operation Dixie, this post it lays out a plan for how the AFL-CIO could actually invest in organizing in the South. Um, operation Dixie, of course, was the last big major um, effort at organizing the South, which is worth reading about just in itself. The struggles and failures and occasional wins of, of workers in you know, the Southern U.S. fill many, many excellent books. Um, so their plan, I'm not going to go into all of the details now because you should read it, is ambitious. It calls for a very large investment in resources. It calls for unions to work together through the AFL-CIO and be willing to share the wealth in ways that often they are not willing to do. It takes racial justice as a core principle of labor organizing, and it's coming from people who actually live and work and organize in the South who understand that culture, um, the lack of labor culture in the South, which they've written about in an earlier blog post, and the unique struggles of workers in that often misunderstood region of the country. Um, so often we hear opinions on how to fix the South from pundits who live in Washington, D.C., or we have opinions about how to fix New York City from pundits based in Washington, D.C., but I digress. As a sometimes Southerner, I think we should listen to these guys and to more people like them. Um, if we have any listeners who are organizers in the South, broadly speaking, I would love to hear from you. Anonymous or otherwise. <laughs> yes. Mike Elk of In These Times has a great piece called For Union Members Defeat at Crystal Sugar Anything But Sweet. You may have inferred that it's not the most optimistic piece of writing, it, it is part of his great series, touring as part of the Summer of Solidarity, and it looks at the legacy of the failed campaign to resist concessions during the lockout at American Crystal Sugar. Mike does a couple things here that don't get done enough in these conversations, one of which is to look back after the struggle has come out of the headlines and talk to various people about what that defeat has meant and another is to explore defeat. There are certainly plenty of defeats foot in the labor movement, and it's important to understand them. And he, he notes that it, it is often uh, tempting, and there are sometimes good reasons to seek or find moral victory or strategic victory in some tactical defeat. But he questions, in this case through interviews, whether the idea that this union will emerge stronger than it was before actually is grounded in what people have experienced since the cameras went away and, and the half of the workers that could and chose to went back to work. Sarah, if I want to see you with an amazing lineup of incredible humans that I, I will be overcome with embarrassment and awkwardness to be in the same room as, are there any opportunities for me to do that? Don't 
get me any more nervous than I already am. Yes, we, as I mentioned last week, on Monday here in New York City at Judson Memorial Church, I will be part of a fabulous event honoring John Nichols and Robert McChesney on their new book, Dollarocracy, about the money and media election complex. Um, I will be speaking along with Nichols McChesney, Someone you may have heard of, her name is Amy Goodman. Um, somebody else you may have heard of, his name is Jeremy Scahill. Um, my dear friend, Allison Kilkenny. And I've just learned that my also dear friend, Ali Garib, has joined the lineup. So um, it's going to be a party. The tickets, I believe, are $10, and they go to Benefit Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, a wonderful media watchdog organization. So come see me. Try not to show how nervous I am. With that, tweet at us, hashtag belabored, tweet at Descent Mag. Many, many thanks to our wonderful, wonderful producer, Natasha Lewis. Thanks always to Descent editor, Sarah Leonard. And we look forward to seeing you next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, the fact, hell no, we can't go. Society.